You are listening to the Restoration LA podcast. For more, visit us at restorationla.org. All right, good morning, everybody. So, before I begin, I just have to say, God is up to something. God is up to something. We already have a theme. What is it? We're like, It's very obvious what the theme is this morning, right? Victory, right? It's come up several times. I will just say that maybe as a church, uh, uh, as a church in the logistics, we need to communicate a little bit better because nobody knew that this was going to happen. But it just so happens that the title of my message today is Jesus' Victory. So God is up to something. So let's find out, yes? All right. So one of the big questions that I get all the time as a geek is what is the greatest Star Wars movie of all time? And the answer, of course, is yes, The Empire Strikes Back. Okay, episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, is bar none the greatest Star Wars movie of all time. Okay, that's because it has the greatest story arc, it has the best character development, it has romantic tension, it has all these amazing things, amazing battles, it is by far the best Star Wars movie of them all. But no, well that's a TV show, that's different. And Mandalorian's a TV show. Yeah, you can, you can see my rankings later. Anyways, Last Jedi is at the bottom, just so everyone knows. Um, amen, thank you. So, if you'd asked me that question, though, as a kid growing up, I would have had a different answer. Because The Empire Strikes Back was not my favorite movie growing up, because in that movie, the bad guys win. Okay, spoiler alert, sorry. It's 1980, it's okay. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm back a little Okay. So, um, in The Empire Strikes Back, of course, at the end, Han Solo ends up in carbonite, Luke gets his hand chopped off, and Darth Vader reveals he's his father. Sorry, spoiler alert, I don't think that's a spoiler anymore. And, you know, it, it ends on this weird cliffhanger of like, oh, oh, we have to wait another three years now to find out what happens back in 1980, okay? And it was this tough thing for us to deal with. And I didn't like that as a kid. I didn't like that. And so, is this feeding back just too much here, guys? I can hear it. Too much? Should I switch to this mic? Okay, I'm gonna switch to this mic. Better? Okay, wait. So, uh, my favorite movie of the Star Wars trilogy growing up was Return of the Jedi, okay? Now, that is known as probably the, the worst of the three original trilogy movies, and, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I loved it. I loved it. Not only because it had, like, the most epic space battle that I'd ever seen growing up, but because, in the end, the good guys won, right? The rebels destroy the second Death Star. They defeat Emperor Palpatine. Luke overcomes all of his fears, all of his doubts, and, and redeems his father through the power of love and family. And we love it because, in the end, the rebels are celebrating on the moon of Endor, dancing with little furry Ewok creatures right? We love this because it's victory. The good guys won. We won. That's great. I don't think there's anyone in this room who doesn't like to win, right? There's no one who doesn't like to win. I mean, even if you're a good sport when you lose, right? Everyone likes to win. It's not a thing. But we live in the, an even better story than the Star Wars trilogy. I said that, okay? We live in a better story than that without Ewoks. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> We live in God's story. And spoiler alert, God wins. Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. And that's what we want to explore today. Jesus is victorious. What is he victorious over? And if he is victorious, how does that change the way that we live today? Okay? Now, first we must ask ourselves, what is he victorious over? Okay? We have to have a, an, an understanding of what the world is actually really like. Earth is, our world is like a spiritual war zone. Satan's rebellion against God through demonic activity, spiritual influence that not only has affected humanity, God's most treasured family, but as Roman 8 says, all of creation groans to be back in right relationship with God. Okay, The entire universe has been set ablaze by Satan's rebellion, and God is trying to win the battle or win the war and trying to bring every part of creation back to him. There's this broader cosmic spiritual battle between God and Satan. We see Satan's activities, not necessarily directly physically, sometimes, 
But we see his influence in people's everyday lives as he tries to derail God's people and God's plans and his purposes in bringing the world back into right relationship with him. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against the enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's so easy today for us to become divided and tribal and polarized because of our social media inflated culture that we live in these, you know, like these just bubbles where our own opinions are just, uh, just parroted right back to us. And it's very easy then to make people who don't think like us into the enemy. But people are the people that God wants to save and love. Scripture tells us they're not our true enemies. Our enemies are the supernatural forces of Satan and darkness that are are fighting against God. Before Jesus came, Satan, our enemy, was in control. Jesus even calls him the ruler of this world. He had basically taken humanity hostage, and his ungodly influence could so tangibly be felt by the people of that time as Satan pushed people further and further away from God. He trapped them so hard in their worship of false gods and living their lives in ungodly ways for so long. Everything seemed hopeless before Jesus But this is where Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, came into play. In this cosmic war, God set his victory in motion through Jesus. Our sins that that separated us from God were wiped clean so that humanity could get a fresh start with God and realign ourselves with him. Now still though, Satan, even though his downfall has started... Starts still wields some influence, and that brings us to our passage. And it just so happens that this passage was read to us by Jessica already this morning. Would you look at that? Okay, so we are going to turn uh, again into uh, the book of Colossians, the letter of Paul to the Colossian church. And uh, just a little background. The Colossian church is being attacked by other religions, mysticisms, uh, all trying to contend with, with their deities and spirits. And they were saying that they were superior to Jesus. And Paul is, of course, going to write that, no, Jesus is superior to all of them. Now, we know that maybe, you know, God is the only one God. And so all of these other religions or faiths, all those were, you know, false gods or, you know, demonic activity behind them. But whatever it, it really was, we have to know that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is going to win the battle. So this is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. It's going to sound a little bit different from Jesus. I'm reading from a different translation. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Okay, so here he says, be rooted in Jesus. Be rooted in Jesus. Your faith cannot be deceived by any of those other philosophies or elemental spirits of the universe. Okay, when he uses that phrase, elemental spirits of the universe, he's talking about demonic activity. Okay, you must be rooted first in Christ Jesus the Lord. Verse 9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. So now he says, when you have Christ, all of God came and dwelled in Jesus. That's that's some power right there, right? If the God of the universe is in Jesus, that's everything you need. That's bigger than all those other things. Because he says, he is the head of every ruler and authority. Jesus is the head. Jesus is bigger than all of those other things. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all of our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with his legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them triumphing over them. So now he says to the Colossian church, you want proof? You want proof of God's victory in Jesus? Look at your own lives. Look at the cross. Jesus' victory and Satan's defeat began on the cross. And he doesn't mention this here. And it will be completed when Jesus returns and Satan will finally and truly be defeated. 
On the cross, Jesus took all of our sins and they died with him. And what is resurrected? Himself. But not the sins. They stay buried. Paul uses baptism as a representation of that, that our sinful sides are buried and raised. When we are raised with Jesus, cleansed, forgiven, our sins wiped clean. But what else? The power of sin is defeated as well. Not just for us, but for the whole universe. It does win us eternal life in God's family, but it also sets a start all of creation back into order by erasing the power of sin. Jesus, he says, nails the record of our cross or records of our sin to the cross and disarmed the rulers and authorities. Our sin was the weapon of the enemy. Okay, our lives are tied into this cosmic battle. Okay, but our, our sin is the weapon of the enemy and Satan and his forces, part of their role in corrupting and tempting and condemning humanity is to accuse us of our sins. Revelation 12 says that Satan is the deceiver, the one who accuses them day and night before our God. He accuses us of our sin, right? Now, in America, we are innocent until proven guilty, right? At least, ideally, usually, sometimes, depending on the color of your skin. Um, but here... When we stand accused of sin, without Jesus, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, we did that. We do that. That's us. Put us in cuffs. Throw us, lock us up and throw away the key. We don't need due process here. We are guilty. We cannot deny that we are sinners. We are even called sometimes enemies of God. People today think that we can get into heaven based on how good we are. And I want to be clear that people do do good things, even if they don't have Jesus. They do kind, compassionate things. Yes, that happens, of course. But even an ounce of sin, an ounce of selfishness, anti-godness, unkindness, struggle with emotion, whatever, any amount exists that exists cannot be with God because God is so absolutely holy. None of that sin can exist with him. And so if you picture a courtroom, okay, this is actually like biblical imagery, but if you picture a courtroom where you have to plead your case to get into heaven, okay, by saying how much good you've done, right? So you see Satan, he's the accuser, right? He's pacing around, pacing around, you no, know, with his horns and his, you know, his tail. I don't, I don't even know if that's what Satan looks like, okay? okay. But, you know, we have those images, okay? You can just picture it like that. He's wearing, of course, his nice pressed red suit, okay? It's all right. What's your case? Well, I, I gave to the poor, I marched for justice and peace. I, 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 I helped people. I was loving to people. Okay, sure you were. Yeah, okay. But here I see, and he pulls out his notes. But here I see that, uh, you know, on such and such a date, you put your needs ahead of others. Oh, I see that you have a temper with your kids. I see you lusted, lusted after somebody. I see that you fill in the blank. Sorry. You don't make the cut. You've got a little bit of sin to you. It doesn't matter if you are 51% good, just a little bit over the threshold of like half and half. It doesn't matter if you're 99% good. If there's just a little bit of sin in us, and that's all of us, then we don't make the cut. Not without Jesus. Jesus knew this predicament. We were sinners. We are sinners. But his love for us is greater than that. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He nails the sins to the cross and wipes them away. And as they die with him, what is resurrected? Him, us, and a blank slate. He disarms the enemy. Now Satan in his impeccably and deceptively nice red suit comes and says, all right, well, I see here that you, and now he looks at his notes and they're blank. And he looks up and it's not just us sitting there. It's us and Jesus. And he scowls at Jesus. And Jesus just kind of smiles back at him. Says, Sorry, this one, this is my son. This is my daughter. This one belongs to me. You're going to find that your evidence is lacking. Nothing to accuse us with. Sins wiped clean. And I love the language that Paul uses, Colossians 2, 14 through 15. He set the sins aside, nailing them to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. He basically turned Satan into a laughingstock. Okay? All the audience in that courtroom, they're like, <laughs> Satan. <laughs> ha! You thought you had won, but no, you did not. 
He made a public example of them, triumphing over him. It's like, it's like a reverse crucifixion. Because on the cross, evil thought it had won, right? Jesus is up there nailed to the cross. God is now disarmed of his son. He was made into a public spectacle. When the Roman Empire crucified people, they put them up in high places or on busy roads. Okay? And they did that to act as a deterrence for other people. People would walk on by to see crucified criminals up there and basically mock them as they were dying up there. It's a slow, painful, and also humiliating death. They were made into laughingstocks and, and weapons of fear for the Roman Empire so that no one would, re- would rebel against them. And behind the scenes, you can also imagine Satan laughing, thinking he had won the day. He and his forces all knew who Jesus was, the Son of God, here to save the poor humans. But now, who's going to save them? We won. We beat God. We might actually win this war. But then plot twist. God's actually going to use this. And don't you just kind of love the craftiness of God? He's like going a little behind the scenes here and kind of tricking Satan. I love how he was kind of sneaky about this. Because he sent Jesus to the world, first in a miraculous way, yes, through Mary and Joseph, but as a poor baby. And I don't mean like a poor baby, like all babies are just like helpless and unable to do anything, because that's what they are, like a poor little baby. But no, this family actually lived in poverty. This is not exactly the greatest strategy in the world, God. What are you doing? You're powerless. And you're, you're sending him to the Jewish nation, who are basically a vassal state to the Roman Empire right now? This isn't a really power play right here. But then through his life, connected through God the Father, he lived this holy and perfect life. But one that was so radical in his teaching and so powerful in his attraction to the human heart that the crowds and his influence began to grow. The ways of Jesus, the ways of the true God started to attract people. And this began to become a threat to everybody. I'm like, okay, we're a threat to the Roman Empire. All right, all right, let's go, Jesus. Let's go overthrow them, right? A political win. That makes sense, right? No, that's not what Jesus did. In, in, back in those times, there were actually, uh, you've heard of the Pharisees, you've heard of the Sadducees. There was another sect of, of Jewish uh, people known as the Essenes. And they wanted to overthrow and rebel against the Roman Empire. And their whole thing was taking knives and stabbing people. Like they were the stabby Jews. Okay? But Jesus did not want to be a part of that because his kingdom was a spiritual one. But this all began to threaten the Jewish authorities because he claimed to be God. And that, of course, was blasphemy to them. And his rising popularity threatened their control and their power. And he threatened the Roman Empire because if Jesus proclaimed that he was God, that meant that in his mind, Caesar was not God. That didn't gel well with them. And, of course, Satan was threatened because here was Jesus, the son of God, going to free people to teach them how to live correctly. And so his power was threatened, too. So for the powers that were back then... Jesus was dangerous. Jesus was flat out dangerous. His presence threatened to completely upend their entire way of life and their power structure. We have to understand that, that Jesus is dangerous. We do not think of Jesus as dangerous, right? We think of gentle Jesus, safe Jesus, savior Jesus, right? But no, Jesus is dangerous. Like, how is Jesus dangerous to my life? He's dangerous to me because like at our church, we use Hawaiian bread as our, as, as our uh, communion. And I'm like, I love Hawaiian bread. I don't know if you've ever seen me. Like, I love Hawaiian bread. And so you stick that in front of me and there's extras because, you know, you didn't take enough of it. I'm going to go back there and I'm going to sneak a few more bites and just eat it and eat it and eat it. That's how Jesus is dangerous to my life. Uh, no. But for completely different reasons, okay, Jesus was dangerous to all those power structures. But Satan then got Jewish and the Roman authorities to conspire against Jesus. Maybe we can kill him. Maybe we can get rid of him. And the plan works. It works. Jesus is up there on the cross. Whoa. Did Satan win? Did Satan win? I think he thought he did. But no, as it turns out, that this sacrifice, this death was all really a part of God's plan. In a way, Jesus tricked Satan into letting this happen. What did we sing this morning? You turn what the enemy meant for evil into good, right? Because now Satan has nothing to fight with. Paul says that in Romans 6, sin no longer has dominion over you. It's robbed of his power. You no longer have to obey its passions. You no longer have to obey it because not only is the way of Jesus better, but the power of sin is broken. Satan accuses us of being a sinner? Nope. I I may have sinned. Yes. But now I'm washed by the blood of Jesus. Now I'm a follower of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The answer is still buried in that tomb. The power of sin and death, undone by a single yet supreme act of self-sacrificing love, 
by Jesus, the Son of God. Satan thought he had won, but Jesus turned the whole world on his head. We have to understand that Jesus' life and victory is entirely radical. So many times we get used to thinking of just like the stories that we hear over and over in children's church, you know, and they kind of sound like little fairy tales in the end. If we hear them over and over, like, oh, look, there's Jesus walking on water. Oh, look, the doves descending on him. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Feed 5,000 people. Oh, that's nice. Nice Jesus. Gentle Jesus. Yay. We love Jesus. But then when we think about it, we need to see that Jesus' love is actually radical. It's this inbreaking of God into the world. He flat out invades the kingdom of darkness and wins. This is huge. God sends Jesus teaching and living truth, justice, radical love to people. And at the same time, uses the power-driven, domineering, Satan-influenced, whether they knew it or not, culture of that day, and tricks them into making Jesus into the thing that sets his people free, that sets you and me free. This is who Jesus is. Our Savior, our Lord, conquers Satan and his influence His victory is astonishing in its complexity and genius and power and love. Paul says that Jesus triumphed over them. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Revelation tells us that the accuser has been thrown down. The laughing Satan became the laughing stock. Psalm 110 says that God's enemies are turned into footstools. Our sinful sides are buried and we are raised to new life. It is finished. It is finished. Our Jesus, our God, is victorious. Jesus is victorious. Now, you might be saying, life doesn't look like victory right now. We still have this awful war in Ukraine. COVID doesn't feel like a victory. Even after I have Jesus in my life. I still sin. I still struggle. I have more defeats than triumphs. My marriage doesn't look like what I know it could look like. My emotions and insecurities still take me captive. We have to be clear that the process is still taking place. Both Jesus and Paul call Satan, again, the ruler of this world. Paul says it after the resurrection. So Satan still does have some power and influence, but he's being backed into a corner. He knows that his defeat is imminent. He's trying to take as many of us down as he can and take us with him. But we know how the story plays out. We know that in the end, God wins. Satan will still try to derail us. But when we are in Christ, when we have been died, or we, we have died and been raised to new life, Satan has nothing against us. No weapon formed will prosper. And so the ultimate victory is promised to us and foretold and guaranteed by Jesus. Not fully realized yet, but... We can live out that victory today. We can still live out that victory today. The beauty of the gospel is that while so many people place their hope in just the eternal life, okay? Yay, I get to go to heaven. Obviously, that's good. But the beauty of the gospel is that we can start to live heaven right now. We can start to win that, live that victory in our lives right now. We can take a little piece of heaven and bring it to earth. We get to participate in Jesus' victory. And indeed, we must. Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Yes, spiritually, our sins are crucified and buried. But we still actively have to make that choice to go and crucify our flesh and make the right choices to live with God. But we have this chance to live out that victory. We have to make that choice, but we can have this chance. Now... Being that we do have action, right? We do have choices to make. I need to make this clear that this victory is not ours. It is not ours. We did nothing to win this victory for ourselves. It is solely and always has been God's victory, right? We get to participate in it, but God was the one who won the victory. It's like if you're a sports fan and your team wins, sometimes we say like, oh, we won. Like, yeah, okay, your team won, but you didn't actually play a part in that, right? Okay. When the Dodgers won the World Series in 2020, one of my bucket list items was complete, except that this bucket list item, for me to see a World Series in my lifetime, World Series win in my lifetime, I saw it when I was three, but that doesn't count. Okay. Uh, there was nothing I could do to cross the thing off the bucket list, right? There's nothing I could do. Okay, sure, you can say, like, I'm in the stands, I'm cheering you on. Okay, that gives a little energy, sure, I guess. But that was 2020, the year of COVID, right? No one was in the stands, okay? No one else played a part except for the players and the coaches. 
And I want to make this clear, guys. No matter how much you think that you are changing the team with your fandom, you're not. <laughs> your lucky jersey has no effect on the team. The way that you've been couch micromanaging Dave Roberts with his bullpen has not affected the team whatsoever. You didn't do anything to affect their win, okay? That was their win, okay? But we get to celebrate it, right? We didn't get a parade because of COVID, but we can start to embody it. David is wearing a World Series Dodgers championship jersey with the gold trim around it, okay? He's embodying that victory. He's living that victory right now. You can buy the cap that says 2020 World Series champions. We can start to live it out and embody it, but we didn't win the victory, okay? They did. And the same thing with God. We didn't do a thing to win this victory. God did. Jesus did. But we can start to make it real in our lives. That's the choice we get to make. God did the work. We did not. Okay? So if we want to do that, if we want to live out that victory, we must be able to then live our lives in anticipation of that victory. We have to be able to see prophetically into the future to see this complete victory and let that drive us. Let it shape our lives. We do not fight for victory. God did. He's already done that. We do not fight for victory, but we fight from victory. We do not fight for victory, but we fight from victory. We have to, okay, you guys are saying, wow, I just need to just be clear. I didn't make that phrase up. I saw it online and I was like, that's brilliant. That's really good. So I can't take credit for it. Okay. Okay. But it was good. Being able to see the goal and let it capture our imagination. Okay? We have to be able to see that goal and let it capture our imagination. Now, I use that word imagination with, with, with somewhat trepidation because the word imagination, of course, makes us kind of think of like imaginary made-up creatures. And this is not what we're talking about, right? Last week, we had Easter. And of course, there is this imaginary made-up creature, the Easter bunny. Okay, here I am, going to ruin another holiday. Um, and the Easter bunny is this you know, imaginary creature. And, and people always ask, why is there an Easter bunny uh, with, with Jesus, because it has like nothing to do with Jesus. Well, actually, it kind of does in this case, okay? In a weird kind of supernatural messed up way. And let me tell you what it is. It is that back in medieval times, when when nuns were like looking at rabbits who were like around their little, you know, their, their convents and stuff, okay? They were like, wow, these rabbits, they mate really quickly, right? And then bunnies just boom, pop up. Like this boom, bunnies everywhere. And it was like this miraculous life that just popped out of nowhere. And they were like, well, that's like Jesus. Jesus, life from, from, from death, life from nothing. It's another miracle. And so in a way, the bunnies became like mascots for Jesus. And that's how we get the Easter bunny, okay? And now you can tell your kids that and ruin their dreams. Um, but that's the thing. Like, we're not talking about just imaginary creatures, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about letting our imaginations run wild with what life could be like because of the victory of the cross. That when we see in our mind's eye, in our heart's eye, what life could be like because of Jesus, we can start to then live out that victory in our life. So we must ask ourselves, what does it look like? How is that going to look like in our life? And then how the heck are we going to get there? We must ask ourselves, how are we going to get there? Now, I want to be clear. Again, this final victory is going to be fully fulfilled when Jesus comes back in the second coming of Christ, okay? I do not know when the second coming of Christ is going to happen. Jesus himself said that he was not, he was not made aware of this, and it, this is not something that we know. Plenty of people for the last 2,000 years have made predictions about when it was going to happen, and clearly they were wrong. The Apostle Paul even thought that Jesus was going to come back before he died. Clearly he was wrong. And it could be very soon, it could be tomorrow, or it could be one day in the future that some pastor's going to be saying, people have been predicting the end for 3,000 years, and they were wrong. Could be, I don't know. But whatever the case turns out to be, there's an urgency for Christ. There's an urgency to preach the gospel. There's an urgency to make our lives look like that victory. Okay? And another thing, I do not know exactly what heaven will look like. We have some images, right? We have some images in the Bible that it could be symbols, it could be literal. We're not really sure, okay? And we have a lot of pop culture images of what heaven can look like. But I'm pretty sure that heaven will not look like a bunch of blonde lady angels playing harps and eating bagels with Philadelphia cream cheese. Um, <laughs> you remember those commercials? <laughs> okay. 
Biblical angels are a lot uglier. They may like bagels and cream cheese too. I don't know. Okay. Uh, we also have these images of streets of gold. That's cool and all. That looks cool. Um, but if you want to make your life look like that, you're going to need some weird city permits. I don't know if they're going to let you pave your, your house with gold. And also, I mean, not, nothing against the image of the Bible God, but walking on gold, it's a soft metal. <laughs> I've never quite understood how that's really going to work logistically. But anyways, that's not the point. The spiritual victory is what we need to keep our vision on. The spiritual victory. That's what I believe we need to concentrate on. Revelation 21, 2 through 7. And I saw, this is the Apostle John, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write these, or write this, for the words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So the first hallmark of this victory is that God's relationship to the creation will be set. And that is that he is Lord, right? Steve already gave that word this morning. He is Lord. Revelation 21, 6 through 7 again, he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from, my, from the spring of life, of the water, from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. God is God. God is all in all. The final word, King and Lord, I will be their God. God takes his place. Early in Colossians, Paul writes to them, 118, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to first place in everything. God is first. Jesus is first. He is the head of the body, the head of the church, the beginning. And he uses this language, the firstborn of the dead. Okay? And he uses the, the firstborn in this, in this way of, of that he's the firstborn of the spiritual family. In Jewish culture, the firstborn son has priority and importance in the families. He is the one who leads the family and tells the younger siblings, in this case us, what to do. Okay? He's kind of the boss. That is why Jordan Romero can be very bossy sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, me, I'm a firstborn son. Mm. But in my family, everybody knew that the boss was my baby sister. <laughs> and still is. Um, Jesus, though, is the head of our spiritual household. He is the head. And to live out this victory, we have to understand that he is the Lord of our lives. Now, in America, we don't like this. We don't like this because we like to be our own boss. We like to make our own destiny. No one can tell us what to do. But as Jody mentioned last week, if Jesus is our Lord, then truly following Christ means obedience. And we bristle at that word, obedience. It can make us feel like a toddler being scolded into doing the right thing. Oh, you have to do this, right? But a victorious life consists of living out obedience to Christ. But again, we don't like that. It takes away our agency, our independence, our individuality, our choice. And we really seem to like this freedom thing, for better or for worse. And so obedience is kind of this dirty word. Because it gets tied into this legalism idea that you have to obey or else. That God just wants you to do all this. Do this, do this, do this. And if not, you're a bad person, right? And we kind of have this idea sometimes that God is like this supernatural cop just waiting for us to mess up. Okay, how many of you when you're driving, okay, if you're like me, when you're driving and you see a policeman nearby you, you kind of tense up like, oh, okay. All right, there's a cop. I'm driving. Okay, Uh, 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Right? Okay. I'm driving. I'm nice and safe. No, I'm not doing anything. My phone's away, right? No, I'm not texting while driving. Nothing like that. Okay. We're good. Use my blinker. Oh, I need to change lanes. Look. Look. Right? We drive at the speed limit. No, let me slow down from the speed limit. I'm not doing anything, right? Don't catch me. Is that the idea we have of God? Right? Like God's just out there trying to, like, oh yeah, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. Oh, you did something wrong. Woo, woo, woo. Go to hell. Right? <laughs> Is that what we kind of picture? Because if that is, if that's the God we have in our minds, we're not going to experience that intimacy. 
we're not going to experience the intimacy and relationship that God has for us. If blind obedience is just from this fear of this powerful God that could strike us down at any minute, it's going to keep us at arm's length from Jesus. If obeying just because he said so, if that's what we're doing, then it's going to breed resentment and disillusionment. We need the other part of the equation. We need the loving relationship with Jesus, the loving, trusted relationship. And that's here in the vision of victory too. Verses two to three. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's a love relationship established. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. Relationship. God with us. He's making all things, including us, new. He gives life from the living waters. That's like another imagery of what Ken shared, that Jesus is the bread of life. We need him. We need him. There's a loving, life-giving relationship that shines in this vision of victory. There's intimacy and trust and adoration. Jesus embodied this both as God with us, but also in the way that he lived his life in relationship with God the Father, because this is how victory was won. Jesus didn't just go to the cross because God said so. Yes, God is king, but Jesus also obeyed because he had a deep and genuine relationship with God the Father. He trusted in his Father's purposes, and his, he trusted in his identity with God. Matthew 3.17, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. We have to remember that in his humanness, in the garden of Gethsemane, when before he was going to go to the cross, he cried out to God, pleading to his father, that would there be some other way to get this salvation thing done? but there wasn't. But because he was so connected with God, because he loved his father and he trusted in God's purposes, he was able to go and bear the fruit. Terrible, terrifying as it was, he was able to do that. When we have that same relationship, when we have the victorious, close relationship, that trust with God the father, with Jesus, we can start to live our lives in victory as well. Jesus embodied it and we can live it. Colossians 2, 9 through 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwell bodily, and now you have come to the fullness in him. You have that same relationship. We uh, took my family to um, the Great Wolf Lodge a little while ago. I don't know if you know what that is, but the Great Wolf Lodge is uh, this giant hotel and uh, water indoor water park, and it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend it. Um, and when we go there, you know, uh, I'm walking with my kids into this giant indoor water park. There's, there's water slides and riptide pools and all this, this fun stuff for them to do. They're like, whoa, this is amazing. This is awesome. And they you know, they go on some of the kiddie slides at first. They haven't been on water slides before. They do the kiddie slides and they kind of work their way up to some of the bigger slides, you know, medium slides. Then I turn to Ethan. Okay. I'm like, Hey buddy, you know, you reach the height limit to where you can go on the big slides. You can go on the big slides. You want to do that? He looks up. He just sees these tubes of blue and red uh, streaming water coming down and people screaming with joy and terror all mixed into one. He looks up. He says, I, I don't know, Dad. That, those are big. Those are big slides. Like, yeah, they're big, but you can go on them. He looks at me. He's like, Daddy, will you go with me? I'm like, yeah, son. I'll go with you. I love water slides. I love thrill rides. I'll go with you. I'll keep you safe. Okay, daddy, let's go. So we go up there. We start walking towards, towards the stairway. These, these wooden stairways are kind of dripping with water. And we're walking up and up. You can see him just being a little nervous, little nervous. Up and up we go. The air is getting a little thicker. Okay? You hear the people kind of, you know, screaming as they, they start to go down. So you can see him tense up a little bit. I'm like, no, no, I'm here with you. I'm here with you. We grab our tube. We hop in the water. The attendant's like, oh, you guys ready? Like, yeah, I'm ready. Are you ready? You're going with me, right, Daddy? Yes, I'm going with you. Okay, let's go. We push off. And then he's like, yeah, this is the best thing ever. This is so amazing. Ah!" 
<laughs> and he absolutely loved it. And now, whenever we go back, he's like, Daddy, let's go to the big slides. Let's go. Addie can stay with Mommy. Let's go. When we have that trusted relationship with our Father, we can do anything. We can do anything. We can live our life the way that God's asked us to do it if we have that loving relationship with the Father and we know that we can trust our Heavenly Father. Jesus made this clear. We have to have all this, that Jesus is Lord and we have a loving relationship. That is the absolute foundation we need to start living victoriously. Because we can look at that vision, okay? We can look at that vision, and if we don't have that foundation, we're going to falter. Because what does it say? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. The first things have passed away. And we look at that, and sometimes our lives are like, that doesn't feel real to me. That feels like a pipe dream. Sounds too good to be true. So many of us today are living our lives with some mourning, crying, pain. This is real. And I want to be clear that we know that in this life, there will be trouble, there will be struggle, there will be tragedy and trial. The Bible flat out tells us this will be. Living victory day to day can be an absolute challenge. And I do not want you to think, I do not want you to walk out of here today thinking that if you are in some trial right now, if you are undergoing mourning right now, that you are somehow disappointing God by not living in victory. I do not want you to think that. Part of the vision is that God is wiping away the tears. And that implies that those tears are real. They are absolutely real. They are real and they're often difficult and painful. And I do not want to minimize that, okay? But when we allow Jesus into our lives to dwell with us intimately and let him comfort us, that can be victory, okay? This isn't just, oh, just get over what you're going through because Jesus won. It's not just be happy because Jesus won. It's not like that. But victory, however, can still be within our grasp. It might look a little bit different in your present situation. I cannot promise you that your issue is going to immediately be resolved. I can't promise you that it's immediately going to go away. But I believe that Jesus gives us a way to endure suffering victoriously with patience and love and grace. Every time we let the Lord carry us, that's victory. Every time we let the Lord hold us, that's victory. Every time we seek community instead of sustained isolation, that is victory. Every time we choose to give our sorrow and our anger to the Lord instead of taking it out on others or internalizing it, that's victory. And even in our darkest and deepest moments, and we just feel like we can't get out of bed in the morning, our realest moments, even when we falter, we can have the assurance that it may feel like darkness right now, it may feel like defeat right now, but we are assured victory in the end, even if we can't see it. Scripture tells us that there is a time to mourn, but Scripture also tells us that those who mourn are blessed because they will be comforted. God is near to the brokenhearted. And when we reach out to God, even and especially in those feelings of hopelessness, there is victory in that as well. We have to be clear that we can expect continued and future trial. The creation is, after all, just in the midst right now of being set right. It's not fully realized. And people are, well, still people. And so many of our tears are caused by people. Sometimes we cause them ourselves, right? That's still going to happen. And unfortunately, we cannot control the actions of other people. And so perhaps then, for us to live that victory, is for us to become the people who are trying to live out this vision by being not causers of death tears, and mourning, but instead becoming people who give life and blessing. That's how we can live out this vision. And this is where, again, we need to be reminded that the final victory of the cross in that Satan and his forces, the spiritual evil, the discouragement, the accusations, the labels, the emotional turmoil, the sin, the doubts, whatever he throws at us, those have been defeated. Those have been defeated. Paul says in Romans, sin has no dominion over us. In this passage, passage in Colossians, he reminds us that all things are below Jesus. They are lesser than him. They no longer have control over us. We have choices to make. But are we going to let our choices be determined by all those things? Or are we going to let our choices be determined by victory? 
We don't have to listen to humiliation or guilt or shame, the feelings of being unfulfilled, the disapproving voices of our culture or our parents, the feelings of failure, the weight of expectations. Each of those are weapons of Satan. But Jesus disarmed Satan and wiped all of those away. They maybe feel like monsters to us, controlling us like slaves. But to God, they have been defeated and brought low, brought to heal. And he wants us to have this revelation for ourselves that those things do not have to have any meaning in our life. First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have conquered them. You've conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Satan has been and will ultimately be defeated. We can see his lies, his accusations, temptations as utterly and totally meaningless because King Jesus is greater. Living victoriously for Jesus means living the victory on the cross. Living victoriously means seeing Satan's lies and the power of sin as defeated by the power of the Lord Jesus' love and then reflecting that love to the rest of the world as we embody that ultimate triumph. So we can, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we can take every thought captive to obey Christ the Lord. That's victory. We can, as James 4.7 says, submit ourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from us. That is victory. Whenever we let God start to break in a, a break an addiction cycle, every single step away from that cycle is a victory. Whenever we resist giving into our negative emotions because we find security in Jesus Christ, that is victory. Whenever we forgive somebody because Jesus has already forgiven us, that is victory. When we place our trust, our identity, and self-worth in Jesus over our doubts and fears and insecurities, that is victory. Whenever we are honest with our selfishness and start to confront it, we spend time in prayer, deepening our relationship with Jesus. We spend time in the word, growing in our knowledge of him. When we worship and place him on the throne of our lives, that is victory. Whenever we are slow to speak and quick to listen, seek reconciliation, serve the poor, brave sharing the gospel, extend the blessing, proclaim truth, encourage our neighbor, that is victory. When we offer a shoulder to cry on or empower someone else's walk or steer someone just ever so slightly towards the cross, that is victory. And whenever we fall, whenever we fail, because we will sometimes, whenever we sin, but don't let that hold us down because Satan accuses us that, oh, look, you're a sinner. But we say, nope, I did it. I did, and I might need to make amends. I might need to say I'm sorry. I might need to repent. But I'm going to get up and walk because Jesus has already raised me up. I am victorious. I am victorious because Jesus is victorious. We, this is how we fight. This is how we fight. This is how we win the battles. We let Jesus' victory empower us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 through 4, Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. That is the victory we have. And he says in Romans 8, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Church, can we declare that Jesus is victorious? Can we declare that Satan has been defeated? Can we declare that we can live victory right now because Jesus has already won us that victory, that we can bring a little piece of that future heaven to our earth right now? Let's live victoriously because Jesus Christ is victorious. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, you are victorious. You have won that victory on the cross. You have won that victory for us. Nothing we could do. Nothing we can do. And we are so thankful, God. We are so thankful. May that gratitude just overflow from our lives, God. And God, I pray, Lord, that anyone here who's experiencing defeat right now would be able to tap into the reality of your victory. So you'll see that, yes, things are bleak right now. Things are dark right now. I do not know how I'm going to overcome. But God, you do. God, you do. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and knowledge and most of all, your grace and love that we would know that we can overcome because you have already overcome it. If there's anyone in this room who's not yet had a relationship with Jesus, if there's anyone who here 
who can sense this victory, who can sense this power through the cross, through the demolishing, the destruction of our sinful nature, and through the resurrection of Jesus, that we might have that new life as well. I want to ask if there anyone here who would like to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning, I would just ask you to raise your hand. No one's looking. If that's you, go ahead and raise your hand. Jesus' love is powerful. And it looks like then that we all know who Jesus is. We have a call. And God, I pray that you'd help us live out that call to live victoriously, to not let our situations define who we are. So God, I just ask, Lord, for your victory to be made manifest in our lives. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your son, for your love for us. We pray in your son's holy name. Amen. Jesus is victorious. Amen? All right. So our charge today then is to go out there and let's live victoriously. Yes? Yes. All right. Uh, Please remember, if you want to uh, go to the softball game, please sign up with Ken. And um, I think that was the that was the first one coming. Yeah. So. All right. What did I say? Oh, right. Softball game. Just trying to relive my glory days with that amazing catch right at the end. (laughs) (laughs) No. And my skin knee. Anyways. All right. We love you guys, and Jesus loves you too. Have a good week.